you don't ever fall into the blind spot of thinking that you found all the answers and that you're it and that you're going to save the world on your own. As soon as you get into that kind of complex, you're into very dodgy, hazardous territory. The Roadmap Back to You. Reshape your world from the inside out and find peace of mind. Welcome Arti Kapoor to this Kanagara Roadmap Back to You podcast. Arti is an advocate for human rights. She's deeply driven to fight for the protection of vulnerable people, especially children from exploitation and abuse. And over the last 20 years, Arti has worked in the UK in Asia and Africa against human trafficking, labor violations, and child exploitation. In 2015, Arti set up Embode, which is an independent consultancy on human rights advising multinational businesses, UN agencies, and NGOs across Asia and Africa on how to better protect people against exploitation. She's a qualified lawyer in the UK and the US and also a trained organizational analyst, bringing the strategy, study of systemic dynamics to her approach. She is also co-founding Mosaic Leadership, a joint venture with a team of colleagues to support the emergence of innovative leadership, this evolving world. She's known for her analytical and contemplative mind with a fundamental grounding in the Buddhist path and practices. I'm really, really excited and blessed and grateful to have Arti with us today. So welcome. Babisha, the pleasure and the honor is all mine. I'm deeply touched that you would invite me to this podcast. And I hope you don't mind me saying I've known you for longer than I've been doing all those other things. And I'm just so excited about what you're doing, your path and the difference that you're making in the world. So I'm just so honored to be a part of it. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, this is a conversation I've been looking forward to like all week. (laughs) Same here. So could you share a little bit about the work that you're doing in Asia and Africa? Okay, so um, as you know, I'm talking to you from Bangkok, Thailand. I've been um, living in Asia for this time 10 years, over 10 years now, but I also lived in Cambodia for four years as people will probably be able to tell from my accent, I'm from the UK, born and brought up in the UK. And, you know, like you, I'm also from an Indian family. (laughs) So that whole multicultural piece is just a part of me. And my work is very much focused on human rights. It's my passion. It's my vocation. It's not a choice that I made. It's a, a calling that I responded to. And the work that I do is very much about building knowledge, changing attitudes, gaining insights into how we as organizations, as businesses, as governments, as NGOs, as individuals can actually make a difference in the world in helping people protect people from abuse and violence and exploitation and actually help people heal from the trauma of that violence, abuse and exploitation. So that's really what I do. Yeah, how I do it is through research, training, strategic kind of developing of roadmaps with our clients, but really being curious on the ground. And we work, as you mentioned, you know, across Asia and African countries in particular. Yeah. And, you know, I'm aware of this deep 
calling that you have and drive to fight for the protection of vulnerable people, especially children. And this topic, uh, reading your website, really touches me, um, especially from exploitation and abuse. Could I ask, like, why this path? What led you to this cause in your life? I think from a really young age, I've always had a real sensitivity about injustice, about things not being fair. And I think I've always been quite empathic, even though I haven't accepted my empathic qualities until like a month ago, actually. It's quite a recent discovery I've made. But from a really young age, I just could not bear seeing injustice, whether that was just my sister being told off for something that I did instead of her, or whether it was because the children at school were being aggressive and cruel towards me for being different, or just because I was being treated differently because I was a girl or because I was brown or because I was whatever. And I think that violence, abuse, cruelty, discrimination, marginalization has been something that has an experience that I have been quite intimately familiar with from quite a young age. And that has made me even more sensitive to injustice and wanting everyone to be treated with dignity. So I think that's what kind of made me the shape of this person I am now. But then the other part of it was the calling. And that was a part of it that I didn't decide. The work chose me. I didn't choose the work. Yeah. And when when was it that you kind of made that decision to work in this field, your journey in that? So what's really interesting is I didn't decide to work in this field. I kind of obeyed the universe, but I kicked and screamed. So what happened was I was a very good student, you know, oldest in my family, type A, got all the best grades, went to good university, studied law, and thought I would make my parents really proud by being a lawyer. But as soon as I got qualified, I ended up trying and trying to find what we'd call a pupillage in the UK. And uh, this is when you do the bar and then you need to be trained in a barrister's chambers. And I worked for about a year and a half as a paralegal looking for pupillage. And I had all the grades and I had everything that you would need on paper, but I wasn't able to get pupillage. It was unbelievable. Why not? And um, I came across what I can only describe as discrimination and kind of not being able to fit the mold of being a lawyer. And at that time, it was still quite dare I say, white boys club. And I just didn't fit the bill. Not only was I not the right gender or the same, the right color, but I was also not from that particular class. I come from an immigrant working class family. And so I let my ethnic culture express itself through me. And and I found that it just wasn't really something that was really acceptable in the profession. It may have changed now, but uh, over 20 years ago, it wasn't like that. And what I then found was an opportunity in Cambodia to go and work on issues of sexual exploitation, human trafficking, violence against women, and kind of take on a role there. And it just felt like all these doors were being slammed in my face. And I was, I couldn't understand why why I wouldn't be let in. And then I had this huge door opening on the other side of the world 
that was inviting me, calling me to come in. And so I went. And this is how every single major vocational decision in my life has been made. It's when all the doors of where I want to go have been slammed in my face and all the no's have led me to a path which is saying, come this way. They weren't decisions that I made. They were all, it's almost like they all channeled me to another direction and I just had to obey the universe. It's like, okay, if this is what you'll have me do, I'll do it. Wow. And, you know, like from your work, and my understanding is that you're really on the ground, you know, witnessing exploitation and abuse, and you're kind of really in the field. How do you yourself stay centered, you know, knowing that you've come from this background of experiencing injustice, and then witnessing this happen on the ground? What's your journey in navigating your own emotions around it or your own healing, which can I can imagine would bring up a lot. You know, when we all experience violence, or um, which a lot of people have, violence or abuse, you know, the things that help us are the systems of people, the organizations, the trained people around us that know how to help us heal. They are able to point out, look, this is what's going on in your life. And you know, this is how you can help yourself. This is how we can help you. And whether it's a court system that recognizes, you know, what domestic violence means, whether it's a police officer that recognizes what a child trafficking victim looks like, or whether it's a trained, let's say, a therapist that is able to point out what psychological abuse or violence means. Now, this only comes from studying the issue, having compassion for the people that have suffered, and then building systems that help that healing process. So for me, the way that I stay centered is because I trust that if a system and an organization can recognize, identify that suffering, and there's a channel for people to go through in terms of a healing process, what else are we here for? So the centeredness is around knowing that there is an answer, that there is a solution. We can't turn the clock back and make that suffering not have happened, but we can certainly help. And I think that is really the key. What I'm trying to say is that it's when we're left alone with our trauma and we're left in that disconnected state that is the real tragedy. And I think that if we all kind of embrace our trauma, we can actually become wiser through it. So that's what keeps me centered because I feel there's an opportunity for us to become wiser through the work that we do. So that's why I keep centered. I don't I don't ever really feel hopeless in the work. So that's in your organization and what you do with Embode, that's really what you mean by systemic approach. Mm. How does your organization make this happen? So what we'll do is, you know, often when we understand that, let's say, we know that there's children working in the world in child labor, and they contribute to the very clothes that we're wearing, or the very chocolate that we're eating, or the other products that we're using, we can really feel like, how can this be allowed to happen? You know, how can children be allowed to be exploited 
in like cocoa farms or in garment factories. And it feels like there should be a very easy answer to that question. With Embode and the work that I do and the work that I do with my clients and our team is that what we say is that you can't just stop people from not using children because it's a lot more complex, right? I mean, most of the children and, you know, UNICEF and the International Labour Organization have just come out with the latest report on child labour in the world. And they've, and they've identified that child labour is actually in, has increased in real terms in the world. And this is because, and what they found is that the majority of child labour cases is in families, because children work with their families on farms. The majority of child labour in the world takes place in, in the agricultural sector. And in the agricultural sector, most farmers have small farms, men and women, and their own children are helping them on the farm. And with COVID, children aren't going to school. So when we in the West are sitting there eating our chocolate or wearing these clothes and we're saying this is really bad, how can child labour still exist? And they kind of blame all the big companies. But actually, it's the systems, isn't it? If there was a system that enabled children to go to school and have a good quality education, if we had a good social security system that helped vulnerable families with making sure that they their children could access school and that they were able to access any health services in, in case of an emergency or other funding in case they were you know, not able to earn enough in the year, then you'd have a social security system that would be a safety net. So it's the system that enables us to then fight against the very causes and enablers of child labor. And the same could be said for all other for, you know, causes of labor exploitation or child exploitation in the world. So that's what we mean by systems. We take a systems approach. We don't just say, look, it's against the law to use your child in the farm. So you can't use your child on the farm. Well, that's not really how it works because you've actually got to help the whole family to not need to use their children in the farm. And then you need to have a system that supports children to go to school and help them be, you know, ha- fulfill their childhood. So that's what we mean by systemic approaches. But of course, we can go further into that. But what I guess what I want to say is, Bavi, is that when we're working on human rights, we can't just think about human beings in isolation. We need to think about communities. We need to think about society. And we need to be thinking about how business works, how government works, and all of our institutions. So that's what we mean by systemic approaches. Yeah. And, you know, your work is a lot about holding people accountable to uh, these standards and working with businesses, governments, nonprofit agencies. And what kind of resistance have you been met with? And how do you deal with a resistance? Do you have maybe a story to share around overcoming that resistance and what kind of resistance that shows up for you? Okay, so there's a few different resistances that happen when we try to hold people accountable. So when we say we hold people accountable, it really sounds like it can feel like people are being blamed. And in the West... Um, you know, having lived and worked in Asia for so long, you know, in the West, with any kind of trauma that happens or abuse or violence that happens, we always look for someone to blame. And so when we're talking about accountability, it feels like we're looking for someone to hold responsible. It looks like we're looking for someone to to blame. And so what often happens 
is the resistance comes from being defensive. The resistance comes in, well, it's not my fault. We're trying to do the best that we can or getting into this uh, dynamic where the defensiveness comes up about what we are doing and what we can do and what's our responsibility and what's not our responsibility. So governments can very much feel defensive and blame on businesses. Businesses might feel defensive and blame it on governments. With NGOs, especially advocacy NGOs, you know, a lot of advocacy NGOs will blame the brands because they're big and powerful. They'll blame governments rather than, I think, promoting an idea of how we take shared responsibility. When we're looking at systems, we have to look at how we share responsibility between us. No one agency, no one person can save a child or save an exploited person. The social services need to work with the police. Police need to work with immigration. Government needs to work with businesses. Businesses need to work with communities. It's all about how we understand what my role is and what your role is. If we don't understand our own role and we don't understand the other person's role, then we're working in isolation. So the resistance is about working in silos. When I first went to Cambodia and I started working against like child trafficking and human trafficking and sexual exploitation issues, what we often did is we started saying, well, Cambodia needs a new law. And then Cambodia got a new law, which, you know, it was great to see this coming in. But then it was about the enforcement of the law. You know, Cambodia is a poor country and it was certainly poorer 15, 20 years ago. And so all of a sudden we've got this wonderful law, but then how do you enforce it? The police were paid, a, a typical police officer was paid $25 a month. And for a police officer to really survive, he or she needed to live on informal income from their police duties, you know? And so what you've got is you've got formal systems and you've got informal systems. And so people, and at the same time, we used to have a lot of press and media coming to Cambodia, talking about all the child slavery and particularly, you know, sensationalist media coming to Cambodia to talk about the child sex slaves of Cambodia and this kind of thing. And at the same time, you had these, it was almost like who's exploiting who here? You know, we've got the story of children being exploited in Cambodia. We've now got a law. We can't enforce the law because the country's not capable enough because of the resources. Khmer Rouge had just, you know, left like less than 20 years before. So you're trying to rebuild a country. But at the same time, people are coming in and talking about sensationalist stories so that they can sell newspapers and magazines in the West. And it was all really exploitation, levels of exploitation above other levels of exploitation. And as a lawyer, I got lost. I got so lost because it felt like, well, if I'm only working on a legal system, that's not part of the whole story. You know, we've got to work on on developing the country. We've got to work on raising awareness. We've got to work on changing attitudes. We've got to work on building a health system so that people don't get don't have health emergencies, which then prompt them to, you know, allow their child to go and work in the city and then they go and get trafficked and exploited. So where do you start from? And then what I realized going back one step was that the very organizations I was working in, the very NGOs I was working in, the very entities I was working in 
you know, were mirroring the very exploitive and abusive dynamics that we were seeing in the context. And that was what I was blind to. You know, we expect to see the trauma in the communities we work in when we do this kind of work, but we don't expect, you know, our own organizations to traumatize us. And I think this is the blind spot in the work that we do. In whatever social protection space we're working in, we've got to be able to work on our own, the way we treat each other. And so I think the most significant resistances I've come up against is the ones in my own organizations, the ones in my own sector, whether it was in Cambodia, whether it was back in the UK, working on human trafficking in the UK and working amongst police, law enforcement, government entities in the UK, you always get those kinds of people, I'm afraid to say, that will use positions of power in order to build their own profiles. And in order to, we human beings are all fallible. So I would come across people that would be doing this kind of work, not really to make a difference, although that's what they purported to be doing, but they were in this work because they wanted to build their own career and they wanted to build, build their own profile. And they were motivated by a savior complex together with some kind of megalomaniac kind of complexes about, you know, and this is one thing that we need to be very, very careful about in our world, because right now we're in a little bit of a crisis with the kinds of leadership that we're seeing. And a lot of leaders that are leading a lot of these types of work in organize, you know, in organizations don't haven't done their own work on themselves. So I ha- that's a long answer to your question, but it's about doing your own work, not your own person, not just your own personal work, but doing your own work in your own organizations to make sure that you don't ever fall into the blind spot of thinking that you found all the answers and that you're it and that you're going to save the world on your own. As soon as you get into that kind of complex, you're into very dodgy, hazardous territory. Yeah, that makes sense. And if I can be a little bit controversial, you know, very often on Facebook, I see like people signing petitions. You know, some big chocolate brand is, uh, you know, accused of using um, child slaves in their supply chain. Sign this petition and, you know, end slavery. And this kind of petitions are so simplistic And it's not that easy and it's not even that accurate to say it. So I think we should, as consumers, people sitting in the West, I think we need to be a lot more discerning about how we act, what we buy, who we buy it from and, you know, what we decide to sign. um, You know, so I think the complexity of the world requires our curiosity um, and inquiry, not just our advocacy. And what would, say, a consumer from the West, like, say, I'm in Berlin now, you know, like, what would be the first steps that you would take or suggest to take? Because I think a lot of people do want to do good. So what would be the kind of direction or step? So first of all, we have no limit to the amount of information we've got access to, right? We've got more access to you know, information than we've ever had before. So first of all, I would access information. And there's too many issues in the world. We need to pick and choose, whether it's the environment, whether it's social issues. We need to pick and choose what it is that we want to know more about. And then we just learn about it. 
And, you know, we should choose carefully the organizations that we support and we should choose the products very carefully who we decide to buy from. And, you know, these days there are so many different options with the kinds of companies that we buy from that we should actually research the the companies that we're buying from and make sure that we can check brands and their reputations and things like this. So that was what I would advise. I would advise us to actually check Uh, human rights policies of the products, companies that we're buying from, banks that we invest in. Every bank should have their own human rights policy now. There's no excuse. So where's our money? Where's our money going from every penny and pound that we spend to, you know, the bigger, the bigger dollars that we spend? Consumers have more power than ever right now. And do you have a story of directly someone's life that has been impacted by the work you do? Yeah, I can think of many moments where, you know, working with some big multinational companies where they've really listened and they've changed their whole policy and they've changed their whole programs and the way that they work from a reactionary-based approach to the risk of human rights violations in their supply chains to a proactive, preventative approach. Companies that go beyond what their legal liabilities are, but actually go one step further and say, actually, we want to help communities. We want to help communities be more you know, empowered in the way that they support their children. So, for example, like with cocoa and chocolate, in West Africa, we've got some of the highest rates of child labor in the world, particularly in agriculture. Over the last 20 years, all the cocoa trading, chocolate industry and governments, especially in Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire, have been working against child labor or eradicating child labor. But we're not really seeing an end in sight. And one of the reasons is because we're going in being reactionary rather than looking at the causes of child labor. Now, if children could go and go to school, why would they be going to the farms? So rather than having spent all of that money on raising awareness about child labor, what if we had spent all of that money on schools and building education systems and not building schools by individual companies because companies shouldn't be in the business of making schools, but actually working with the governments in those countries to develop the education system. It's all about systems. You don't go in and build a school. You go in and you support the government and the formal systems and developing an education system, if we had been doing that over the last 20 years, I think we would have made a much larger dent in child labor in West Africa than we have done. It's when, in the moments when I've been talking to people and pointing this out, and the penny drops in the room of, you know, CEOs and government leaders, that's when I feel like that's going to make a difference. So then they will go on and make those kind of leadership decisions that are going to emerge and actually make a difference. And uh, one of the things that you shared is really about kind of shifting perspectives and having people really understand the dynamic that's going on by shifting someone's outlook on it. Is that is that correct? You know, one of the things I talked about earlier, Bavi, was when, you know, when we get into this work in NGOs or a government, or when we get into this work of the social service, whether it's medical or, you know, whatever, we have to do our own work. And very often, I think that if we're not conscious enough, and if we're not self-aware enough, 
we can get a bit mixed up between being career driven or actually doing the work in a selfless way. And when we're talking about shifting perspectives, it's when I'm working with people who are not only technically capable at the work that they're doing. So they're really good at researching, they're really good at legal analysis, for example. But are they also self-aware enough to know that their attitude is just as important as their technical capability? I mean, when I'm looking at my team for Embode, half of the competency I'm looking for is attitudinal competency. Are they able to put their ego aside and actually learn from their experience? And, you know, it's not just about um, ego and putting it aside, because the other part of it is, like the Buddha said, you know, you've got to take the middle path. On the one hand, you need to be confident enough. So you need a protective ego as well. You need to have an ego enough to protect yourself, because in this work, we can become too selfless as well and we can get burnt out. And we need to have very good boundaries to protect ourselves. But at the same time, that ego boundary can't be so strong that our attitude is about not listening to others. So that perspective is about having an altruistic mind or bodhicitta, as we say in Buddhism, having an altruistic mind to actually help others because we know that our happiness is in the happiness of others. But being skillful in that generosity, being skillful in that compassion and making sure we take care of ourselves too. So that's one of the attitudinal shifts, I think, that we need to evolve into if we want to do this kind of work. We need to be warriors, but we need to take care of ourselves as well. Yeah, definitely. And especially, like you shared at the beginning, especially when we're empathetic and sensitive, it's really having those healthy boundaries to be able to protect ourselves whilst we help others. I think that's really important. I mean, I have been burnt out in my work a number of times, and I'm still learning to have strong and good boundaries. But this is a hazard of the work. When we care too much, we think that um, we can just keep giving. But it's so important. It's so important to take care of ourselves, especially when we're doing work on trauma. Because the other thing that happens is that the trauma of the other can be mirrored in us and that our trauma can be mirrored in the other. So we need to keep doing our work and we need to keep detoxing and cleansing and making sure we go off and, and do all the other work that we have to do. Yeah. And, and what are some of the tools that you've used in doing that? Like, how, how do you take care of yourself? Oh, God. So you know what, Bobby? For years, for years, I had this dream that every morning I would wake up and I would do my Dharma practice and I would meditate every morning. And I just thought, how do other people do it? But I would inevitably wake up late, not have breakfast, have a coffee, run to the bus and get to the office. I mean, I did that for years, for years, right? And then, but when I became my own boss and I set up in Bode, this became, I actually managed to do this practice. So I actually have a daily practice. I get up, I have a contemplative practice for at least half an hour to an hour. Then I do my Vipassana practice. And then I do a body movement practice. And that's my morning daily practice that I do. And maybe because I'm older, I can wake up earlier or I just have insomnia or something. But I couldn't have done it like 10 years ago, but I've been doing it consistently since setting up in Bode. And if I didn't have that practice, I don't, it's my reason to be like, how can I not have my spiritual practice 
that keeps me centered. And then the other things that I do is I'm very, very strong about not doing, not having my team contact me on the weekends. I don't even put my phone number on my email. I'm a very strong introvert and I'm an empath. So I can be very sensitive and I'm becoming more and more sensitive as I grow older. So these are some of the practices that I, that I keep. Yeah. 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 That's so essential, isn't it? Having a kind of a, a place that grounds us as individuals, either that's meditation or yoga. For me, I'm finding, you know, I'm generally a very mindy person. So for me, moving from my mind down to my body um, has been a journey in itself of doing my yoga and practicing body exercises. I think that's quite important as well for me anyway. Yeah. But how do you deal with, let's say, when you get, when you're dealing with an edge, you know, do you use your meditation and your practices to deal with an edge that you are at? You mean like a trauma that comes up or? Yeah, a trauma that comes up or a challenge. It doesn't have to be as strong as a trauma, but a challenge that comes up in your life that you're like, this is bothering me right now. This is up for me right now. I'm also quite introverted, you know, and I need a lot of time to process. Like, I mean, something happens and it takes me a long time to process. So journaling is one of my favorite activities, like just going away and just writing about it gives my mind some space to like contemplate what's happening and then give it some space so yeah journaling for me has been a a very powerful kind of technique I I don't journal every day but especially if I've got something strong coming up or something strong that's happened I will usually just sit and and write about it and then like for me I think especially being in Athens one of the best things is just going for a walk in nature like just completely switching off and just going for a walk I find that quite nourishing but I'm also very very sensitive so I get impacted very easily so I really need to do these practices and take a lot of space and time out where I'm just not thinking about anything so that's personally on my journey because I do work with people and also when I find when I'm facilitating a group I can pick up on people's emotions and it kind of stays with me so I think these energetic boundaries are quite important as well. Like you said, no one contacts you in cert- these certain times or it's an ongoing inquiry and journey into how to really take care of yourself whilst you're doing this kind of work. I find that for myself as well. It's a... Yeah, just with what you were saying, you know, sometimes we take in so much information, right? And it's like, oh my God, how do we process all of this? And sometimes one way of what I'm learning and what journey I'm on right now is how do we take this as a communication, you know? And if we were able to understand the language of what we're picking up and not make it only about me, but actually what am I being shown from the information that I'm getting from the universe, that's the part of the, the calling that I was talking about earlier. It's almost like sometimes the universe shows you a way and you don't listen and you don't listen and you don't listen. And then it knocks on your door and you're still not listening. And then it kind of jars you with something really big. So this is one of the my edges right now, you know, and I'm just wondering about it with you. Like, as I said, I've only accepted a month ago or two months ago that I'm an empath and that I'm getting more sensitive. And what's the opportunity about of being an empath? What's the opportunity in being so sensitive? 
I think it's such a gift, isn't it? Sensitivity in the world is needed. This is the part of us which is the feminine and the part of us which is very, very sensitive to everything that's going on. So thank you, Arti. It's been so amazing having you here. Thank you so much, Bhavi. It's been wonderful talking with you and sharing about my work and having this conversation. And I know we're going to be having another conversation soon, so I really look forward to uh, meeting again. Yeah, thanks, Arti. This was part one on systemic approaches to human rights, and I'm really looking forward to part two, uh, where we talk about being Indian in the UK and our cultural similarities and upbringing around that. So looking forward to that. Hello, friend. Thank you for listening. If this podcast has sparked a flame in you, I encourage you to take the first step and download our free Ikigai journal or join the community at kanagarajourneys.com. Also, I invite you to share this podcast with a friend if you feel it can benefit them. Using the wisdom of the Tao, the Enneagram, meditation techniques, and so much more, I share the tools that have made a profound impact on my own journey and invite experts and high performers to share their secrets. I wish for you love, compassion, and peace, and I look forward to connecting with you on the next episode.